Ah, beloved, I'm Pastor Trey, and you're now listening to the New Living Translation. This is Bonafide Bible Talk, because God speaks my language too, and I'm sure enough about to act like it. Let's go. Another day, another opportunity for us to crack open these Bible books and see what we stumble into. Right now, I'm recording this in the middle of Black History Month. If you're listening to this when it releases, then you're also listening to this during Black History Month. But some of y'all like to listen to this show on CPT. If you don't know what that stands for, don't worry about it. The relevant information for you right now is that it is Black History Month and that I am black and I like Black History Month because dang it, black people helped build this nation too. And if we're gonna pretend that we did it for 11 months out of the year, then we deserve 28 days, 29 this year of acknowledging the fact that we been here. Now, whereas I am a vocational and professional and academically trained theologian and minister, I am only an amateur historian. So one thing you should not expect right here in this episode as I'm talking about Black History Month and all of that is a deep dive into the facts of black history. What you should expect with me being a proudly black man who happens to be a theologian with a new book out, Theologizing Bigger, Homilies on Living Freely and Loving Holy. Go check it out if you haven't already. And if you haven't already, shame on you, but we digress. What you should expect is me to do some theologizing right here. You see, I'm not one of those people who goes around looking for black people in the Bible. I think that often confuses some of the labels that we're using right here. Blackness as a sociological reality postdates the Bible by several, several, several centuries, over a dozen centuries between the closing of the canon and the construct that we now recognize as blackness. A lot of times people will highlight the presence of African peoples in the Bible, but I don't often conflate African with black for the simple fact that it's not really how any of this works. Lots of people who are rightly described as African would not often be labeled or identified as black by our common understanding. And when we conflate these terms, I think we can sometimes end up in problematic areas. For instance, there are a lot of times when people don't want to examine the inherent anti-blackness in some of their theologies because they'll point to people like Augustine and Athanasius who were African, but Berbers for the most part. They were Northern African people would not have thought of themselves as sub-Saharan Africans, which are typically the people that we're thinking of when we talk about black people, right? And so there's this sleight of hand, we start switching up all the terms, all that to say, I'm not really the type to go for the whole, where are the black people in the Bible tip? I know that there are times when the Bible itself describes some people as black, like we have Simon the Niger, all of these other things. I don't think we're talking about the same things, but that's neither here nor there. What I am here for, is thinking about and wrestling with what being black means in an ontological sense. Now that's a big word, but I'm talking about in the nature of being, the nature of essence, as opposed to the sociological constructs. What do we really describe when we talk about black people? And I think that that is more than just what we look like or 
phenotypical features. I think that's more than dark skin and wide noses and thick lips or whatever stereotypes we have about black people. I think that what it means to be black in essence is to find yourself on the underside of what society has ascribed importance to. It is to be received as inferior in your very being. And I think that there are plenty of times we find such people in the Bible. I think that it is very easy to argue that the very context into which the incarnation occurs is one in which Jesus chooses to identify with the people in probably one of the lowest socioeconomic classes of the Roman Empire. I think that's how the text reads, but I'm not even going to that part of the text today. This episode of the New Living Translation is going to take a look at one of the first African characters that we have in the Bible that is described not just as whatever we assume the descendants of Ham to look like, but someone who was presented to us as not only an Egyptian, but an enslaved person. So whether or not they were black, as we would think of from a physical or phenotypical standpoint, I think both sociologically and ontologically, it's a whole lot of overlaps here. So without any further ado, without me digging into this, too much deeper on the front end. We gonna have us some bona fide Bible talk about Genesis chapter 16. Let's get into it. Now, Abram's old lady Sarai ain't have no babies with him, but she did have this Egyptian slave named Hagar. So Sarai told Abram, look, God don't block me having any babies, but if you're trying to do that night thing to my slave, Maybe I can have a baby by her. And Abram listened to Sarai. After Abram had been in Canaan for 10 years, his old lady Sarai took the Egyptian lady Hagar, her slave, and she gave her to him to be his wife. So Abram did that night thing to Hagar. And she got knocked up. And when she saw that she was knocked up, she couldn't even stand to look at the missus no more. And Sarai told Abram, this is your fault, babe. I gave my slave to you. And when she seen you knocked her up, she act like I did something to her. God gonna judge between me and you. So Abram told Sarai, look, yo, she's your slave. Do what you want to do. So Sarai started harassing her and she ran away. Now way out in the boonies, an angel of God found her by a well out by the back roads to take you to Shur. He said, Hagar, you Sarah's slave. Where you coming from? Where you headed to? And she said, I'm running from Miss Sarai. I'm trying to get out her way. God's angel told her, go back to the missus. Hang in there. Let her have her way. God's angel said, your kids going to have so many kids with so many kids with so many kids that they not even going to be able to count them all. Then God's angel said, look, you knocked up right now. You're going to have a son. Name him Ishmael because God hears your pain. 
he's going to be a wild boy. He'll have to fight the world. And the world going to fight him. And all his life, his brother's going to have beef with him. And she named the God who spoke to her, God who sees me. Because she said, Right here, I seen God. And he seen me back. So the well was called God Sees. You can still check it out. Right between Kadesh and Bered. And that's how Hagar had Abram's son. They named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar had Ishmael with him. Can I be real with y'all? I don't really like this story. I got some problems with it. And if I were to try to take just a couple of moments to outline some of my problems with this, this would turn into a much longer podcast than we're typically used to with the New Living Translation. But since it's my podcast, we're going to do it anyway. First and foremost, Hagar's name. There are some biblical scholars who suggest that what we're looking at here is actually more like a descriptor. Hagar, meaning the stranger or the foreigner. We don't even know a proper name and we kind of just stuck her with Hagar or Hagar. Now, somebody just deciding they knew who or what you are and deciding that that is what you would be called from now until they felt like calling you something else is something I can relate to. I might not know what Hagar looked like, but I think I can empathize with what she felt like. Another problem I'm having here is that Hagar doesn't seem to have a whole lot of agency here in this story. We don't know if she wants to be with Abram. We don't know anything of this sort. All we know is that Abram and Sarai had these grand plans of having this large family and couldn't get it done and decided that Hagar would be how they went about pursuing this mission, how they went about building this estate, how they went about transferring wealth. I may not know what Hagar looked like, but I can empathize with what Hagar might have been feeling in this situation. Now, Hagar finding herself in this situation, impregnated in a situation she didn't seem to have much say in, begins to feel some level of contempt for the people who are exercising their authority and dominion over her. And when this becomes an issue, they decide that the solution is harsher treatment. I might not know what Hagar looked like, but I can understand how she might have felt. And as she's enduring this treatment, she decides that it is time to run away. She flees from the people who are making her life harder. She flees from the people who are robbing her of autonomy and agency. She runs away. And it is while she is fleeing from the people who have robbed her of everything that makes her who she is, robbed her of the very image of God in which she was created, that she runs into an angel of the Lord, a messenger from God who asks her, where are you coming from and where are you headed to? And the only answer that she proffers in this particular story is, I am running from my mistress, Sarai. We don't know about the family that she may have left behind before she became enslaved to Abram and Sarai. We don't know about her history or any of those things. Perhaps that stuff has been stripped away from her. All she knows is that she does not want to be where she found herself. I may not know what Hagar looked like, but I think I can understand what she might have been feeling. This is where the story gets a little more uncomfortable for me. The angel of the Lord, this messenger of God, says you need to go back there. In essence, that is where you will find your provision 
in this season. And he goes on to talk about how Hagar is pregnant with a son who's going to be a great nation, but always going to be living in strife with his brothers. Again, I may not know what Hagar looked like, but I think I can understand how she might have been feeling in this situation. But that's around the part where the story actually starts to get I guess kind of good. This is the part of the story that sticks with me because even having gone through what she has gone through, even having heard what she has heard, what Hagar takes away from this situation is that God, the creator of heaven and earth, the ruler of all that is, has seen her, has understood her frustration, understands the fact that she does not feel as though she can carry on any longer in this given circumstance. And Hagar does something that we don't actually see too often in the Bible at all. We don't see it before her. I'm not even sure we see it after her. Hagar gives God a name. God actually spends a lot of time introducing God's self to a whole bunch of other people in the Bible. When Moses meets God at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3, Moses has to ask God what God's name is. And God says, I am who I am. God introduces God's self as a verb. But when Hagar meets God in the wilderness, Hagar actually tells God what God's name is. Hagar says, you are El Roy. You are the God who sees me. So, yes, God identifies themselves as the God who is. But Hagar meets the God who sees. And she states that confidently. Now, Hagar's story doesn't end here in Genesis chapter 16. Though she encounters God, the God who sees her, she goes back to Abram and Sarai, and she endures a lot more mistreatment and eventually gets put out. But the God she meets way back in Genesis chapter 16 is still with her, still seeing her, even in Genesis chapter 21. And the worst designs that have been laid out for her by the people who owned her and mistreated her come to naught when the God who sees her says that I will still take care of you. I will still stand with you. And so this Black History Month, I am comforted and strengthened by the fact that black people still exist in the United States, despite the worst that we have had thrown at us throughout history, because the God who sees saw us, sustained us, carried us, and will be with us forevermore. Let me pray with you. Almighty God who sees us, help us to remember your character even in the middle of our plight, that in you we might find our sustenance and our deliverance in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Translation is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. You can follow us on Twitter at Three Black Men. That's the number three, not spelled out, Black Men. You can follow us on Threads, too, at Three Black Men Pod. That's the number three, Black Men Pod, over on the Threads app. You can find me on all social media platforms at Pastor Trey 05. That's Pastor Trey 05. You can even link up with me on Facebook nowadays at facebook.com slash realpastortrail5. That's realpastortray05. The best place to keep up with me is pastortray05.com. That's pastortray05.com. And there you'll find all of my social media handles. You can subscribe for my newsletter, get regular writings from me. You can even find out where you can purchase my book, Theologizing Bigger, Homilies on Living Freely and Loving Holy. 
This work has been made possible by a community of folks who've chosen to show their support through generosity. You can join us at patreon.com slash three black men. Spell three out that time, no, patreon.com slash three black men. There you can find even more original content from Sam, Rob, and yours truly. Make sure you subscribe to, rate, and review the New Living Translation and Three Black Men wherever you get your podcast. And remember, real recognize real. Don't get caught looking unfamiliar.